Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Attack and Release Show. My name is Matt, and I am joined today by my good friend, my great friend, confidant of a friend, Sam Moses. Hi there! Say hi to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, hi there! You know, get up on the soapbox, yeah. Hey! Hi! hi. Yeah, it's so uh, good to see, see y'all. Here y'all. It's so good for y'all to like, listen like to me. being harassed right now. <laughs> All right, today's episode, uh, this is a listener-requested episode. I actually think they requested this earlier this year. But the day, the moon, the sun, the stars, the tides, everything kind of has to align, you know, for, for certain episodes in order to come out. And I think today is the day to record this episode. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe it just got, has to, like, sit in the mill for a little bit and that's just... I, I I don't know. It's like some requests come out immediately and others are just like we... It's not that you're passing over them, but it's like, nah, it's not time yet. It's like you, right. it's kind of like a brisket, you know? Like a brisket has a time. Right. And it's normally six hours after you tell everyone that dinner's going to be. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, whatever you're taking that to. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's like the first brisket you ever cook. Uh-huh. Either that or it's like... The first time I do a brisket, it is like the perfect thing. It is like smokehouse quality. Yes. And then here I come, you know, strutting out, ready to do the second brisket. I don't know, however long later, and you completely bombs. I literally I like, have done that. Yeah. And I was like, man, what did I do? And then like, you're kind of like, you got that ego a little bit. And this is what I think it is. I don't think you're following the instructions as close because you're like, mm-hmm. man, I got this. Yep. This is so easy. This isn't the toughest darn muscle on the darn cow. This thing is going to be a cakewalk. And it's more like pie in your face. And it's like dry and like gnarly. There's like roast beef of a brisket. <laughs> it's like the it's like the turkey in like, what is it, Christmas vacation? Uh-huh. It's like... <laughs> Uh, yeah so anyway some episodes kind of have to just sit in the till until the right time yeah and uh this person asked if we would do an episode on how they could essentially switch from a mixed career to a mastering career and so we're kind of doing a bit of a broader episode on how to switch to a mastering career in general, if that is something you are interested in. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, is it something you're capable of? Is it is it difficult? Is it easy? Are you built for it? Is it is it just like a simple like light switch, like flipping on or off? Or is it something a lot different? But before that, mm-hmm. before we get into the episode, mm-hmm. like like this brisket is ready. Like it is sitting <laughs> in the cooler. It has been <laughs> Smoking for the past couple months. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, that'd be weird. I brisket that old. But it's like, it's Age. in the cooler, like wrapped in the paper, like ready to come out and be sliced. It's mm. been resting. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm a salt and pepper guy. I used to kind of do a little bit, a little bit more. I'm like straight salt and pepper, Texas kind of hard brisket. Hard to beat, just salt, pepper, and a good smoke. Oh, man. Yeah. Anyway, I, I digress. It is time. Why don't you take us into like a smoky housekeeping? Mmm, smoky housekeeping. Step into my smoker. Step into my meat locker. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> it's a meat locker. It's my dream to have a meat locker one day. You're going to be like dry aging? Yeah, that's what I want to do. No joke. I'd I want to have a meat that. locker. It's not that I've complicated. O- I've always wanted to get like, I don't know, like the four or so like prime rib roast. Yes. And then you just, I love, I love dry aged stuff. Yeah. I would love to get into that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Step I, I on took in. you away from your meat locker. Step on into game. the meat locker. Welcome, my friends, listener, audience. If you're still with us, thank you. As always, this is uh, this is housekeeping. This is that unique, fun time for you to help us out. Please help us out. Screenshot this episode or a past episode. Post it on Instagram. Tag for the record mastering. Tag Moses Hello. mastering. We will reshare it. We cross market. We get to know you. Most importantly, one on one, which has been so fun this past year of doing this. We get to have great conversation. We always learn stuff. Uh, y'all also get to give us uh, topics like this one, like direct topics, and then we make them into episodes when it's the right time. 
and fits into our schedule in context. So thank you so much. It's, uh, I think, made the show better uh, overall, and it's been a lot more fun for us to get to know the audience. So please help us out, screenshot it. Also, if you can, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes, so you can keep finishing records better and better. And I think that's it. Housekeeping out. Closing uh, the lid on the smoker to keep the smoke in. Locking up my meat locker. Ta-ta. Ta-ta. Man, so I was on a a road trip this past weekend, and uh, South Carolina recently got its first Bucky's gas station. Oh, yeah. Are are you familiar with with the Bucky's gas station? I am familiar with it. It's very, like, trendy right now. Man, there there's something going on. I had one of their brisket tacos uh-huh. actually by one of them. I mean, I had two going up and then I had two on the return trip about a week later and my lord. They my are. lord. I made the mistake cuz like the first time I ever went to Bucky's, I got like a brisket sandwich, mm-hmm. but I guess they sauce it and it's just I'm not really about like sauce and barbecue. Yeah. Um if I do, it's kind of like, we got a lot of barbecue here. It's like, we might try some different sauces, you know, have a little bit of fun. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in general, I'm not really about saucing, saucing this stuff. And uh, definitely go uh, definitely go unsauced. The brisket is killer. Yeah. Yeah. I need I, to go yeah. try it. Oh, anyway, where I was going with all this, they have barbecue <laughs> grills out front. And they got like the offset smoker and stuff like that. I was like, man, I would love to get into that. My wife would not be happy if I bought one of these. Where would I even put this? I don't know where I'd put it. I need to get like two guys to help me lift this on my deck. That'd be great. I'll stick with the Traeger for now. No complaints there. I'll tell you what. The best thing is whenever we're podcasting mm-hmm. and I get the little Traeger app on my phone that mm. like I'm obviously at the office. Yes. And my wife is at home hanging out with the kids and doing what she does. I get the little Traeger app. you like, your Traeger is warming up. Actually, it's called, uh, what did I name it? Ah, Happy Grillmore. It said Happy Grillmore is warming up. And I'm just like, oh man, dinner is going to be awesome. Brittany is grilling. So she's like, hey, I smoked some chicken thighs. And I was like, man, what a woman. What a woman. Anyway, (laughs) that's like the whole smoking thing. Like you kind of get me on the train and we're we're all just going to get fat here together talking about barbecue. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the broad topic, not necessarily how to switch just from mixing, but this was a bit of your story. Mm-hmm. Um, you switched from mixing to mastering. I did. Um, but I also want to get to a much broader of topic of if somebody is interested in becoming a mastering engineer, how do you switch yeah. to that career? If we have time. I don't really know how much time we're going to have with all this. Mm-hmm. We got about, you know, like an hour, 45 yeah. minutes, whatever, yeah. on the yeah. clock. Yeah. Standard. Um, if you got a hard stop, shoot me a little text and we'll stop by then. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so let's, uh, let's start here. Why would you want to get away from a successful mixing career? Like, successful is like a pretty... You know, nice word. Why would you nice want to get word. away from a successful mixing career to move into something, you know, kind of unknown? Yeah. Um, I'm going to humbly present my story a bit, just briefly. Not not the whole episode. But this is my own experience in my own life. So take from it what you will. But I, maybe many of you don't know, started as like engineer and mixer. Um, and I was, I'm going to claim... Uh, successful at mixing. I mixed uh, commercial records that did well um, from artists you would probably recognize. Um, you can actually go to mosesmixing.com and that is my mixing website. It's still active. It's got records I've done. Um, you can actually book mixing on it still, I think. Because I actually, I transitioned like 95% of my time to mastering, I don't know when, six, seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, but I'm actually this week, I'm, I've been hired to mix like a pop EP. Um, I have random clients still that like my mix work and my mastering work and they still hire me. So I just mixed a song yesterday actually. Um, but that's probably like, I do just a few mixes a month 
um, at this stage, maybe even less depending on the season. But I, um, I used to and still do, I mastered all my mixes when I was mixing. And um, that's kind of how I stumbled into mastering because my very first experience in studio life, even before I was quote unquote mixing successfully, was kind of like doing assistant beat making, interning at mm-hmm. studios. And during those sessions with like rap stuff, basically be like a beat and the vocal takes in a couple hours and then the client wants to walk out with a finished product. So you're basically recording, mixing, mastering on the fly. Um, it could be really, I found it to be really helpful looking back on it, doing that for a couple of years. You get really, I'll say, um, it's almost like you're not great, but you're making decent sounding records really quick. Um, you don't quite maybe have the consistency, but you're able to crank out records that are probably better than a lot of people just from the amount of reps you're doing which is really important, I think, in audio is just getting reps in, just doing lots of projects. Um, But also, at some point, you need to learn why some records sound good that you do and some don't. Um, That might be a different topic for another time. But um, but yeah, for me, I was finding that the uh, mastering stage was something I actually found to be like kind of easy, quick, and paid well. If I'm being honest, um, a lot of us want to make money doing this or we have uh, ourselves to support or family to support or partner to support or we just want to live our life and make money. And I found that um, most people were used to paying for mastering and when I would offer mixing and mastering, I was always kind of uh, surprised by the response of people being like, that sounds great. Like, you can master too great. There wasn't, like, really a question about it of, like, oh, no, you can't do that. Um, That's more so that idea to me of, like, you can't master your own mixes, I feel like comes from the, uh, like, the engineering side, like, our post side. But the artist side, client side, I've never really ran into anyone who's, like, no. Like, I've never had anyone say, no, you're not going to master your own mixes. Never. I've only had engineers on the other side say, how do you do that? Or you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. Even if you go on like the forums, you'll see basically the conversations are an echo chamber of engineers saying you can't master your own mixes, which is just not true. You shouldn't do that if you don't know how to quote unquote master or like have a general idea about it. You shouldn't really do, in my opinion, anything (coughs) that you don't really know how to do and say, you can do it. Um, If you say, like, if I said, yeah, I can fly that plane, but I've never really flown a plane, that's not very smart. Um, So anyway, I would say, uh, you know, for me, I noticed that a lot of people didn't care that I was mastering their mixes, and if anything, they felt relieved and and glad that I was doing it all kind Mm -hmm. of like a one-stop shop, which I found interesting, um, because I was felt like I was seen and being told um, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. But from the client perspective, and this was even like labels, like major label clients, you know, pretty big large artists who were like, that's fine. As long as it sounds great, you know, and we like the way it sounds, it's fine. So I started doing that and then over the few years of kind of mixing, I'll say commercially successfully, um, I just found myself like mixing to me is quite exhausting. It's extremely, mm-hmm. I would say it's maybe, I mean, if you're live tracking a band and producing engineering, that's quite creative, I'll say. But at this stage of the mixing process, I I would maybe argue that is the most like creative and mentally tolling process um, in the audio creation process in 2023 is mixing. Just because there's so much that gets sent to mixers now that's maybe... Um, you know, a lot of DIY stuff and the client's expecting it to sound not like a DIY project. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of my mixers who, God bless all your souls, you know, you, you fix things, you edit things, you go above and beyond, you replace sounds, you fix sounds, you reamp sounds, <laughs> you edit, you know, the comps, you find the better comp, you tune the vocal better, even though they've already been tuned. Like, people don't understand how much, like, the great mixers are doing, um, to make those mixes sound great. Uh, so anyway, for me, 
I just kind of got exhausted and um, I was kind of tired of doing the mix, I'll say grind of, you know, Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday mix every day and then revisions and dumping in projects. I didn't have an assistant then at all. And so it's just a lot of things to organize and manage. And I found that the money to time ratio and level of like conversion of finishing things like mastering was just easier, more fun, paid better. And I just kept getting hired to kind of do that. Mm-hmm. Once people heard my mixes and they go, who mastered that? I mastered that. Oh, wow, you master. Okay, great. We don't really have anybody we love. So we'll send you a project to try out. Um, that was a lot of my transition. And then I had uh, the studio I was mixing and mastering out of before I kind of had my own space that I liked. The guy who owned that studio basically sat me down and said like, hey, if you really love mastering, you need to go all in on that. You need to like mm-hmm. take off the website that says you basically do everything. If you really want to be like great and make this like your career, just need to rebrand. That's when I went to Moses Mastering Only and kind of took that leap of faith. And it didn't mean I was quitting mixing per se, but I did basically take all my mix work that was coming to me for a long period and just handing that off to my mixer friends who were sending me clients too, started to send me stuff. So a lot of my clients still that I have, probably five or six of them, they have like all my mix work. I gave them everything over the last, well, that would have even been like five or six years ago. I just hand them stuff. And even now when people, I do get people every month pretty much who are like, hey, will you, you know, I heard this record or so-and-so said you mix this, you know, are you open to mixing? I'll just basically for the most part send them to one of the people I trust. Um, and then occasionally I'll do a project here and there if I just if it's really like right in my alley. Um, but yeah, I transitioned. Um, it was it was scary, I'll say, um, to kind of pass on that mix work that was uh, financially supporting my wife and I on some level. Uh, and then when I transitioned, I just went all in on bringing clarity that I am now. Sam Moses, the mastering engineer, and I help people finish their records. Like, Mm -hmm. I got super clear on it, and then I started marketing and talking that way and presenting Mm -hmm. myself that way to everyone. And then people who I was mixing for, I basically said, hey, I would still love to master your records, but here's a few mixers that I already work with and master their records, and they're just, like, obsessed with mixing. That's all they do day in, day out. Like, you can trust them. They're going to do as good a job, probably better job, whatever that means, moving target. But, you know, they are obsessed with mixing. So hand that off to them, and I'm obsessed with mastering. So let me do that. And that's kind of how I transitioned. And it was honestly more simple than I thought it would be. (laughs) Like within a year or two, it was pretty clear that I was, you know, you start turning down all your mix work, people get the hint. You know, and you start sending them to everybody else, and those people then send it back to you to master. master. Um, you know, in Nashville, anyway, like it's kind of a small music scene, in my opinion, and word kind of gets around like, oh, he's not mixing anymore. So, um, but he's just like focusing on mastering. If anything, within the context of Nashville, it's like almost more respected, I feel like, um, mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, he's really like dove into that. That's going to be his thing. Um, so that kind of spread after I kind of earned that, I'll say, like, that he actually is a mastering engineer, which took year, like a few years, especially like my, I feel like when I started, I feel like if you wanted to transition into mastering now, it would be so much easier because there's not so much stigma attached to the way I started mastering, which was like in the box, not a great setup, but I had a good idea of, what people wanted and how they communicated and how to interpret that, I think, sonically. Um, and then a lot of trial and error, practicing on you know the same project over and over again, you know, figuring out what does what. But now, you know, people like, you know, no problem. You can master on headphones in the box if you want. That's not really looked down upon. There's like multiple people, even I do it sometimes, you know, mastering the box on headphones. It's not a big deal. Like you can get, Everything has gotten so much better, in my opinion, um, as far as like 
plugins, equipment, headphones, all that. Like, and I think if you wanted to transition now into mastering, I always tell people I don't believe there's like a shortage of things that need mastered, and I don't think there's a saturation of mastering engineers. Mm-hmm. I do think there is a shortage of great mastering engineers. Um, and I would consider myself great at this stage. And I'd consider you great. Thank you. I do believe Buddy. that. <laughs> I don't say it cocky, but I do know that I've poured myself into this for the last 10 years, you know, made it my career, eat, breathe, sleep it, learn, study, you know, and with anybody, you know, if you're out there, you put 10 years into something every day, yeah, you're going to be great. And I think, you know, then... Maybe you accomplish things that the industry says, yeah, this means you're mm-hmm. good at it. You know, you you get this award or this record or plaque or whatever. This kind of validates that you're quote unquote great in the context of, you know, the music industry. So you start doing that and you get, you know, affirmed in your your professional peer group. And yeah, I think I'm great at it. I know a lot of people think that now. And it took a lot of years to get there. But um you know, you can you can definitely transition, but I I've had probably I don't know three or four mixers over the last few years go like, hey, I think I want to master, and I'm like, great. Mm-hmm. Like, where do you want to start? You know, and I kind of get into it with them of like, here's what you should do and study. I mean, it's kind of like our podcast, like you know, we're mm-hmm. record studying, and they just kind of go like, oh shoot, like. This is like another career. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah. if I really want to get good at this, I need to do basically. And these are mixers that have, you know, some of them like what have think mixed it was? careers. Something, something easy. Yeah, I think a lot of people think mastering is very like quick and easy, which it, it takes less time. So I think people think that means it's easier to learn. Um, but that in itself is a misunderstanding of mastering, and I think that. You know, for people that want to transition, it's I'm always like, well, like, bring it on. Like, come on, let's go. We need great mastering engineers, you know, and there's plenty of money and plenty of work in it. And, but most people, when we get going, they're like, they fall off the map or they're like, I don't, I can't commit to that. Or is there a way I can basically do half of that? (laughs) It's like, you could try. It's just too weird for them or, yeah, like too weird, too much of a commitment, you know, the mindset shift. Uh, For a few of them, it's like, you know, I'm talking to them about the amount of interactions I have, you know. So, like, at any given yeah. time, I'm doing, you know, 30, 40, 50 songs a week. And yeah. so that every day I wake up to 60 emails, you know. Yeah. And it's projects wrapping, projects starting, projects going. Of course, you could be like, well, let's hire an assistant. But I don't really want to scale and, and just take on more work to pay somebody but even if you have an assistant, you're still going to... I had a manager for a while that had an assistant. Mm-hmm. And I still had to basically read everything. And there was like some nice, I guess, like kind of sheltering or protection for me from everything. But I ended up having to kind of be involved in everything still to even communicate with the assistant. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lot of people management, which I think when mixers start to do that, they're like, well, I'm you know a busy mixers doing a song a day, maybe. Um, you know, they're doing five, six songs a week. That would be like top notch mixers. Maybe if you're AA list mixers, you know, I know like the top guys are doing two, three a day sometimes, depending on label demands. I don't think that's every day, but you know, you have maybe a dozen emails, a dozen projects going at once compared to like 40. It's just a lot of, of management of people and you have to have the emotional and mental. Um, stability to really be professional and be able to take criticism and feedback. It's a different being at mastering where at the end of the project, so sometimes you just get dumped on um, mm-hmm. from people that are frustrated with the producer and they are frustrated with the mixer and the mixer's frustrated mm-hmm. the producer and the mixer's now really, the mixer decides they want to have the final word on everything, but you got hired to master, but now all of a sudden the mixer's the final word and they're telling you how to master and it's this like super delicate balance of being able to respect everyone get all the opinions gather it all together and then kind of like decode like what do i need to do here to finish this record and then what do i need to do here to quote unquote make everybody happy 
because we're being hired to, to do a gig. And I promise you, if you piss off anyone in your project at the mastering stage, <laughs> you will never be hired again, ever. Mm-hmm. I've done that. I've done it from the indie label to the label level where, you know, good intention Sam chimes in, hey, you know, if this about the sonic, you know, kick drum, if we do that, you know, I just do that. Oh, you're hearing that. Well, that's because of this and the mix. As soon as you single somebody out at the mastering stage, you lost. You have lost the client. You have lost the gig. Um, yeah, and sucks. so it's a different. <clears throat> it's a different mindset. It's a different level. I think of of management of people and being professional. And the skill set is also very different. A lot of mixers have trouble. Um, the couple that have tried to get into mastering that have helped. They have a lot of difficulty letting records just be done because mixers mm-hmm. kind of are always tweaking a hundred tracks and effects and plugins, and you know they'll revise it ten times. And mastering, you've got to have the audacity <laughs> and the guts to say we are done. And a lot of people don't want that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I've found that too, where they're like, "How do you know it's done?" You know, I've kind of explained in past episodes how I get to that point. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, it's kind of ballsy for me to be like, we're done, guys and gals. Like, it's done. And then everybody trusts that. And then, you know, hopefully it comes out and everybody loves it. And they're like, he was right, you know. But sometimes the record comes out and they're like, oh, we're comparing it now to this on Spotify or New Music Friday. And it sounds a little different. And you get all that heat immediately. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. your fault. And once again, even if you're like, well, the mixer took out all the bottom end, you know, or you guys, even if they, they gave you suggestions, like, hey, keep, we need some more brightness, need some more brightness, we need some more bright. Okay, okay, sure, yeah, you know, you know, well, you know, it feels a little bright, but it's okay. It comes out there, oh, it feels so thin. You're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, you know, you told me to do that over and over and over again. And so it's a delicate balance of gaining trust, educating clients, you know, interpreting, managing people, and being able to have the confidence to uh, call the record done. And so the transition itself to me is is easy. You just you just do it. <laughs> you just start learning that skill set. You know, you talk to me. You talk to Matt. Can you know talk to some master engineers who actually master records and get paid for it. You know, how do you do this? What do you do? You know, you do that and then you need to put on a different hat of uh, I'm now managing people, I'm respecting people, I'm serving the client uh, and I'm very much willing to, to call a record done and then kind of take that heat and also that praise. You know, it's a two, it's a double-edged thing of like, if it comes out, it's great. Then like, oh man, mastering, you know, just crushed it. You know, so cohesive, so loud. You know, and then that spreads and other people hire you, you get rehired, et cetera. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, a career and you're known. But the the transition is doable. And if anybody wants help doing that, I'm happy to field questions, you know, when I have time, happy to go through that with y'all. If somebody's listening who's like, I really want to do this, you know, DM me and we'll start a conversation. But that's, you know... That's my kind of story of how I transitioned. I do not regret transitioning to a master engineer. Um, I take on a few mixed projects, like I said. Maybe once a month I do two or three songs, and that scratches kind of that different itch. But I only am taking on projects from basically people that are easy and adore my work um, for mixing. So it's like we do a V1, a V2, a couple little tweaks, a delay throw, and then V3, we're done. You know, like, or maybe it's just V1. So I find mastering from a technical standpoint to be easier than mixing, I'll say. But the people management side and interpretation of communication is, to me, way more difficult. Um, and getting the, the record done and out the door, I find way more difficult in theory than mixing. Because um, a mixer, you get to, like, hand it off. So if it comes out and kind of sounds crummy, once again, they just blame mastering. Like, <laughs> I've never had someone be like, oh, it's not mastering, it was the mix. 
Like, I don't think I've ever had that. I've had people come to me and go, hey, it sounds quiet. It's too loud. It's too bright. It's too blah, blah, blah. It's your fault. Or the drums don't punch. And I'm like, that's how it was. Like, <laughs> from day one, like, I didn't change your drums, you know. I mean, obviously, you could totally destroy someone's drum mix at mastering if you just, I don't know, scoop out the bottom or make it pumpy or something. But um, but it's just, an, it's an interesting role um, because you'll find two, and then I'm going to hand this off. You'll find, I think, at mastering, it's one of the first times the client usually has had a break from the mix. So I find sometimes, not a lot, but they've, they've really listened to the mix probably too much to where it's just like all sounds like nonsense to them. They hand it to mastering. It takes a few days. <clears throat> then they get it back and all of a sudden they're like, you know, usually they're like, oh, this is amazing, you know, blah, blah, we're done. But every once in a while, we get people who are basically hearing the mix again with fresh ears like, did you change this in the mix? This wasn't how it was in the mix. And I'm always like, you know, just humor me. Let's go listen to the mix. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's how the mix was. Why'd we approve that? <laughs> and it's like, you know, you just took some space away. So, or took some time away from it. So it's kind of a, it's a fun, it's a fun job. Um, but you've got to be really, I'll say, emotional. I have to... When I became a master engineer, I had to become way more emotionally and mentally intelligent, to be honest, than when I was a mixer. And I had to become way more organized and detail-oriented um, as a master engineer and I had to become way more open-handed. And I mean, you should never, in theory, take things personally, but especially at the mastering stage, you're going to get every once in a while people that just lash out at you and they're going to say it's your fault, even though you know in the back of your head, no, nah, that's the performance. No, that's definitely the mix. No, that's, you forgot to comp that vocal like that. <laughs> like, And you just kind of have to like take it, um, you know, and, and back people off the cliff. Um, so anyway, that's my long-winded dialogue for 2023 about how I went from a, a successful mixer to... Um, a very successful master engineer. Uh, and that's it. That's how I did it. It's that simple. Well, that's the episode. And that's it. Have a great night. Anytime you go on these, you know, 34 minute (laughs) things, I always remember there was an episode where you were saying a while ago of, yeah, when, when, when you and I started first talking about this podcast, I was like, man, what do I have to say? I don't have anything to say. I don't even I think know. I could hold a conversation for this long. And it's like, well, it's not even a conversation. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. How the turn- oh, the evolution of this. How the turntables. How the turntables. Um <clears throat> So what do you what what say you, Matt? That's just my opinion. <laughs> uh, you know, my experience. Yeah, quite the experience. Thoughts. Um, I mean, I wasn't really like 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 a studio mixer. It's like as far as like my audio, let's say, yeah, career. It was more like front of house and then into mastering. And one thing that I see as a parallel, and it's like you don't really need to wait around for this, but it could be a good data point for you to kind of like pop in the back of your noggin that. I feel like you and I both had affirmation yeah. from people yep. who essentially were like, man, you do a good job at this. Or, hey, you might be a good fit for this. And so it sounds like this whole, like you were offering this and people are like, oh, wow, this is great, even at like a pretty darn high level. Yeah. Um, and you were telling me some of the the bands, artists, uh, before we started recording. And I was like, yeah, if you're at that level and they're affirming your mastering ability... And yeah, it would definitely be of merit to have a conversation about it, yeah. and like at least with yourself, of like, is this something that is this a road that I'm really interested in going down? Um, and so with me, it's like one of the things is like, I don't know, I'm just super into really technical things, and the. I, I I don't really know what made people kind of affirm me in it, and I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to get into studio stuff. And I was like, like I thought I was going to try to do the touring front of house thing, and um, 
part of me is like, yeah, that would have been cool. And another part of me is like, man, I like hanging out with my family and I'm kind of a homebody. But uh, that was kind of, you know, pre-family, pre-all that. And, but yeah, I just had affirmation uh, towards Mastering Engineer and uh, just said, hey, you should reach out to a few people like this. And some people started uh, feeding me their, uh, their mixes. And in the very beginning, people didn't like my masters. And I can say that they were not very good either. <laughs> um, but it's like the whole, you know, the whole, the whole learning process. So as far as mixing is concerned, Sam, do you miss it at all? Um, not really, honestly. No. I don't miss mixing. I mean, I do like maybe one or two songs a month. And that yeah, like scratches scratch the, the itch. itch. But even yeah. if I didn't do that, I mean, there's there are like, especially like the longer I just master, I think like December, January, I didn't mix anything, you know? And I didn't, I yeah. wasn't like, oh man, I'm really Jones into mix. No fiddlesticks. Yeah. But when I do like get a fun little project from like people I love, you know, it's like, it's exciting and fun. <clears throat> like I pour myself sure. into it to make the best I can. But no, I don't mix, I don't. I don't miss it at all, and I don't ever want to return to any sort of... Is there normally, like, a little bit more of a setup as opposed to, like, you and me? It's like we kind of wake up and we have, like, you know, people filling out the little checklist, uh, whatever, and it's kind of like sitting there in your inbox. Right. And that's kind of like, oh, yeah, I got this coming in. It's like normally there's not, like, much of a prelude to that. Like, in mixing, is there normally a bit of, like, a build-up to, hey, this is coming to you? Yeah, I found... It was everything's to me more complicated, even if you have a system. You know, getting a lot of guys now, and this is and gals, this is how I would be if I was doing it full time, is they just now ask for the session from the producer. So before, mm-hmm. you know, I'd have like a intake sheet that would be like, you know, print all the multi-tracks wet, print the vocals wet and dry, you know, label it, blah, blah, blah. So I could know what the heck is there. Sure. <laughs> um but now a lot of people, because that is such like a hard thing for some reason to get producers to do or artists to do, like labeling, they've just like taken out that frustration and said, just give me the session. Like the wherever mm-hmm. you are, just send that folder over. And everybody I know, uh, they just buy the plugins. They, you know, they keep pretty much what's been interesting is a lot of dudes, and this is like the A-list mix guys do this, like pop guys. They get the session, they buy every plug-in that they don't have, and they pretty much keep like all the routing and busing the same, and then they'll probably like adjust mix bus maybe or send it to their to their usual mix bus and kind of just like reroute all the buses to their kind of bus they like, but they keep pretty much all the rough whatever mm-hmm. was there there because people are so in depth now with effects and plugins and things. So I I find the mixing like getting it going to be way more tedious, um, especially a lot of guys that are replacing samples or doing sampling or tuning vocals even more after the client says yeah it's tuned and then they get it and they're like nah it's not quite there. Um, but yeah, I I always found the mix process to be way more complicated as opposed to mastering. Get a session with the file link. You know, they basically on the form agree to it, say it's done, you know, the mix is done, we're ready to go. I just send an email, you know, basically saying like, got this, I'll have it back on this date. You know, here's the invoice and that's it, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of is what it is. Um, But yeah, mixing to me is like way more um, decision fatigue. Like that's to me what it is of why. I think if I was a mixer like full time, I would for sure have an assistant, like hands down, to like dump mm. everything in, organize all the routing, check everything out, check the files, you know, make sure they're clean. You know, we, I get a record, it's 12 songs. I can check those, listen through top to bottom, you know, in 35 minutes, where mm-hmm. you get a session that's 120 tracks deep or more. You know, not that everybody goes through and solos anything, but there's just way more chance for a bad fade, a click, a pop. Uh, you know, the 808 automation didn't get printed correctly, so on the downbeat, it's slightly too loud or something. So, um, so yeah, in my opinion, there's definitely 
way more involvement of getting a project going, working on the project. Revisions are always bigger because at mastering, they might be like, hey, the bass feels a little heavy. At the mix stage, they might go, hey, the bass is a little heavy, the kick drum's a little thin, also the synths need to come up, the vocal feels strange at 232, and all of a sudden you're changing like the kitchen sink, you know, you're changing everything. And you have to have that delicate balance, just like a mastering of, well, if I change this, it impacts this, so I need to know how to interpret this. A lot of the times, my mixers just joke with like, the clients just want everything more. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, the notes is just like more kick, more bass, more this, more that. It's like, oh, just turn everything up. Um, so you have to figure out how to interpret that. But my uh, humble opinion is, yeah, I think mixing, onboarding, offboarding is way more s- tedious. Plus mixers now, like labels and stuff. This is how it's been for a while. They got to print stems and do all sorts of stuff. Um, for turn in for archive, I know Andrew Sheps has like blessed the mixers with Stream Deck and like auto code or auto macros and stuff to print out stems and things now. Um, so I know there's like a lot of AI and automation stuff now to save a bunch of people time. Where I see my mixers now all the time post on Instagram, like, ah, oh, eating dinner while printing stems, and the computer's just printing it for them. They no longer have to like sit there. But anyway, that's uh. That's my experience and what I see and hear from the mix land. I have two more larger discussion topics. Let's do it. Okay. Um, so we're so we're here. You've talked to everybody who might even be remotely considering mixing as a career out, out of it. <laughs> you mean mastering as a career? Or no, mixing oh, yes. as a career. Yeah, yeah you've talked <laughs> right. them out of it. They're like, yeah. Oh God. Sweating bullets over here. Yeah, you don't want to mix. Um, so as far as... Well, I guess I also want to touch on that, yeah, there is like a lot going on at the mastering stage. It's Stuff doesn't necessarily cost as much as mixing a yeah. song. And so it's like, well, how do you like you know make a living doing it? And so it's really coming to the understanding that, yeah, this is a volume-based, volume-driven... Yeah. Um, part of the industry and you really need to be kind of packing out your week and you really need to know like you really need to know how long it takes you to master like a song like given that like let's say the mix is like pretty darn perfect how long is that going to take you like what's best case what's worst case scenario like figure out like ways to like okay what is like a typical week look like and I mean I think I mean, you were one of the first ones that I spoke with who I heard say this essentially is uh, you reverse engineer where you want to be. Yeah. And essentially it's like, okay, well, you want to be $100,000 a year, you're charging $100 a master. Now, okay, now you have the amount of clients and or at least now you have the amount of songs that you have. Yeah. Now let's divide that by fifty-two. Let's see how, how like what kind of a workload that is per week. Right. Is that actually going to suss out? Yep. Um, I think that's a very smart and sensible way to approach it. Um, to kind of like pre-build out a year just so you know what you're going to need. Yeah. Um, one thing that I don't think we have covered is. How do you learn mastering? I kind of go back to this. Um, I go back to the question of like, are there any good online resources? Back to our Q and A episode. <sighs> are there any good online resources for learning mastering? And I feel like this. Let's call it part of the industry. This sect of the industry is so like anecdotal when you get to like the person it's like you obviously have like a place where like I don't know you line up 10 masters you level match them all and it's like how close are all 10 going to be I would argue that if you're at like you know let's say like 10 to 20 years in doing this y'all are going to be like pretty close yeah and it's like so long as you have like you've been doing this a while and so it's like I don't know, like like the the, the path that you the paths that you take in order to get there may be pretty darn similar. Yeah. Um, how so? How would you go about learning it today? <laughs> because it's like we kind of left people with a bit of a cliffhanger, you know, with that Q and A. I mean, 
if I was doing it again at this stage with the internet the way it is. Would you find a good podcast? I would find a good podcast. Yeah, which <laughs> this one is great. Um, I would also, when I started 12, 14 years ago into this, it's literally like 14 years ago, actually. twenty. I was 21, I'm 35. Yeah, I was assisting at the studio. So 14 years ago, like Instagram stuff, I don't even think it was a thing. Cause that, it was a shell of what it is. Yeah. It was actually like you go on Instagram to see what your friends are up to and not see Athletic you would like, Greens ads. Yeah, all you could, <laughs> yeah, all you could do is post <laughs> one photo, basically, and maybe like it. I don't even know. I don't think comment was a thing, or maybe comments were the only thing and no likes. Back when filters were a thing, yeah, filters were a big deal. When I feel like I started, the internet wasn't really a thing. Like young, a young old people were not on it. Let's start there. And old people are great. So, like, the people you'd want to learn from. So, when I was 21, the guys that are, say, in their 40s, they for sure were not on Instagram, you know, or Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, now, all those dudes, me, you know, me and even, like, a lot of the dudes that I really respect are on Facebook, you know, and Instagram and are active. Um, you know, like, there's a number of great master engineers online who are happy to talk to you, um, happy to answer questions. And when I started, that wasn't really a thing. You still had to like try and attempt to do intern assistant thing, which I did just I remember really, Yeah, go ahead. I remember asking people like if I could just kind of talk to them about it. And it was very I mean this is like twenty thirteen ish. Yeah. And every, it was like super closed off. Yeah, yeah. So right around ten. That years was ago. my it was, experience. Even it's like, it, and it's like you didn't even you just got you just got left on red. Yeah, it was almost like you want to be a master engineer, huh? Like this very snooty, high up thing, which is what I'm saying. Like when I started, quote unquote, mastering in not like <laughs> people did not understand in Nashville how I was mastering, not in like the most pristine room with like you know a hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Like they did not understand that, and the mastering community in town, you know, the older guys, which it's really, I guess, nothing to do with age, but the people that let's see, the experienced people, the people that have been making records for twenty years already, um, you know, just poo pooed that it would that there's just no way that I could master, and that there was no way that I was really like going to be able to serve the client. Which there's probably some truth in that of like now that I do have like a good room full range monitors, yeah, I mean it's way easier, and I feel like I am way more confident in a system I can trust. Um, but at the same time, when I was starting, I was kind of working with a lot of people who also were starting, so we were kind of all on the same level of like feeling out our our career and or you know craft we wanted to quote unquote be a professional at. So there was a bit of like a understanding, okay, you know, we know you're not the guy with 20 years of experience with two Grammys. Like, we know that, and that's okay because we like working with you. Um, so, to, I mean, to answer the question now, you can message me. You can message Matt. You can message other engineers. I feel like pre- people overall are pretty helpful. I would not go to YouTube. You know, I would not buy courses. I would not join mm-hmm. any course. Um, it's just going to give you such broad, probably overviews and stuff. You could just Google, like you could just Google a mastering e-course for free and, or like, you know, you could consume basically every course I've ever like done. And I've done a few just to see like what they're about. It's all stuff you can get for free, like on Google. So I wouldn't spend your time or money on that. I would I would seek out people who actually do it regularly or, you know, quote unquote get paid to do it and make records you like, listen to the records. Um and seek them out. Like I think it's way easier now. Cuz I feel like when I started it was hush hush. I did one I'm not even going to name it, like this one mastering studio in town. I was like the head guys um, fly on the wall. Basically, I don't even know what I was called. Assistant, intern, shadow, 
I think they called it like a shadowing, and then it was going to be an assistant, mm-hmm. but it lasted about a month. And uh, it ended bad. Like, it basically ended with, we did a blind thing between me, he, ma- he mastered it, I mastered it, same client, client picked mine, and then that was it. The, uh, the business manager called me and said, it's not going to work out. And they had offered me a room. So, Dang. Um, yeah, so that was that was the end of that. Like, it just was like, this is not going to work out. He doesn't trust you. And, uh, you know, basically got insecure. Felt like he, what was weird is like, I think he felt like, according to the manager, that like I stole his secret formula. But in reality, the way I mastered the song was totally different than what he did. So we didn't use the same piece of gear, didn't use the same signal chain, not the same order. Um, but anyway, that was my one experience at a legit mastering facility. And that is not to even speak down about that place or the person. Great person, great records, makes a lot of records I like. But um, but yeah, that was that. And then I basically got kicked out of that. And I thought, you know what? I think what I've learned is I can do this however I want. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And that's what I really started doing, was just carving my own lane, you know, and, and making my own path and mastering records and trying to be helpful and, you know, serve people well. And then from there, how I learned mastering was just by, I spent a lot of time, and I don't think people do this, and they should, I would master the same song 10 different ways. Like, a lot of people are like, oh, I need a lot of projects to practice on. It's like, not really. You could take one record, that's 10 songs, and master it 10 different ways. And that'll keep you busy for like a month. You know, if you don't have a ton of work and you want to learn to master, rearrange the plugins. I did that for like years of like, you know, you have your chain. And then I go, you know, what happens when the inflator's in front of this plugin? What happens when it's after this plugin? And what happens? Because if you're using like five or six plugins on one song, I don't even know what the math would be, but you can rearrange six plugins a bunch of ways. <laughs> Like on a on a song, probably like twenty or thirty different ways, maybe even more. Whatever the math is on that, of the combinations of arranging that, and then even within that, you can change the parameters within those plugins. So, mm-hmm. I spent a ton of time the first couple of years doing that when I didn't have a ton of projects, just to learn my tools and go. Oh, when I do it this way, it's it's brighter and louder. When I do it this way, it's louder and bassier. When I do it this way, it's wider and brighter. You know, and that would be just by rearranging plugins and learning my tools and listening. And I feel like that's most people don't do that. And that was just kind of my, I was just determined to do it and learn because nobody else really wanted to teach me. And, you know, I read the few books on mastering that are kind of classic out there, which are to me extremely technical. Um, they're not very tangible or applicable. Um, they're going to teach you about, you know, comb filtering and DC offset and all these things that are true things and real things and, you know, kind of like, okay, that's good to know. But I guess maybe I would think about it as like, this could be a terrible example. If I'm like a indie car racer, I'm not necessarily going to know how the engine works but I'm going to know how to drive it really well. Um, You know, you don't have to know everything about the thing to be able to execute. And I feel like most mastering books, they teach you like everything about audio, except really like, how do you master? (laughs) Like, how do you actually do this? It's just like a bunch of stuff that it's like, you can pretty much pick it up anywhere you want. Right. And like, arguably... You're going to learn it better just like watching a YouTube video on like how somebody uses a compressor. Right. As, a, as opposed to like just confusing yourself reading a book that's. I, I don't think I would have learned how to use a compressor reading a book. No. It's just I not didn't. how I, it's just not how I consume <laughs> right. information like 
And it, I was never like the best at school, like like in test taking and stuff yeah. like that. It's just like these books really don't like help me. It's like I'm someone who's got to go out and I have to go and like get my hands dirty, right? And actually get like applicable knowledge in the field. And it's like, yeah, just oh, okay. Well, this is technically how a compressor works, and it's like, well, that doesn't really like do anything for me as far as like using it. And so, right, I like like a direct parallel would be. Is so I was really into flying like when I was a kid. I think I'm gonna get back into it. I always say that. Do it. I'll let you know if I ever get back into it. <laughs> and like I really got into it in middle school, and I'd always carry around essentially this massive book of like all the things you need to do to be a private pilot and everything you needed to learn. And I was that nerdy kid, but I mean I was so into so into learning it. And uh I'd have like all the little flight simulators, Microsoft flight simulator, like 95, 98, 2000, it was like 2007, and then X, and now they have like the new one that came out of like 2020 or something like that. And uh, I remember it, I like, I felt like I was like, man, like, yeah, I, I, I pretty much have this, like, I can fly a plane. And then I remember my first flight lesson, my flight instructor's name was Jason Sandcombe. Uh, we went over to the practice area. It's essentially this uh, this bay kind of off the coast of South Carolina. Um, it's like I live on the coast, so I don't know. Maybe like by plane, it was maybe like a ten little ten minute flight, and it's like five thousand feet. Like it's kind of like the floor where you're kind of toying around with. Like you're learning things like slow flight and slow flight, like clean and dirty, and it's essentially like. Like you're really learning the ins and outs of how your aircraft actually manages like the load of like lift, weight, drag, thrust, et cetera. And uh I remember Jason's like, Okay, yeah, you so you think you can do stalls? And I'm like, Yeah, sure, I don't see why not. And so it's like <laughs> I've stalled however many countless thousands of times in uh in flight simulator. We go over the we go over Bulls Bay at five thousand feet and it might have been seven. Because I think he was planning on this happening. And if you don't manage essentially the front of the plane and the back of the plane with the rudder appropriately uh, via this this little like ball that like goes back and forth in this glass tube called an inclinometer, if you don't keep the front and the back of the plane essentially in coordination um, because it's going to start swinging because you're going to have some like weird gyroscopic precession as the... Like the prop wash starts like hitting the tail as you're going slow and everything, and then like the wing starts stalling, which it stalls from the what is it? It's like it stalls from the inside to the outside, and you're not really managing it. And then all of a sudden, you have a wing drop, and now you're in a spin. Literally, the airplane is spinning, and you're heading to the ground. And you realize in that moment, I should have brought my brown pants. <laughs> and uh, you kind of realize, okay. Jason, you got the plane. He recovered us. And I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to learn how to fly an airplane. <laughs> um, and I feel like that's kind of the difference between going, like, like learning mastering via a book and e-courses mm-hmm. and stuff like that and actually, like, doing it. Like, whenever you're first flying a plane, you're, you're doing something that's called, like, uh, what is it, PIO, pilot-induced oscillation where it's like you'll hit a bump in, in in the air and essentially it's just like if you ride over a parking lot not like ride like you fly over like a large piece of concrete large cement building it'll be heating and cooling the air around it faster than like trees or a wooded area or a lake or something and it's like all these different like convective temperatures mm. that it's essentially radiating up or whatnot and so that's what you're having, like all this, like a lot of turbulence in these little planes, and you're correcting for it all the time, just like jerking the. It's called the 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 little steering wheel in the airplane. It's called the yoke, unless you have a stick, in which case it's called a stick. Um, but the yoke, you're like jerking it back and forth and everything. You're like death gripping like both little handles on it, and uh, you're essentially like kind of creating this like bizarre oscillation, this like circular motion, and it's, it can get kind of dangerous and it's whatnot. But it's like then as you like kind of learn, it's like yeah, it's just like you know this thing just happens, and you're just kind of you know riding like your car. You got your you kind of riding with your your hand up at the top of the wheel and uh, your other. Uh, I don't know, your other arm kind of like hanging out the window or whatnot. And it's like eventually, it's like, yeah, you're just, you know, with like two or three fingers holding the yoke like down the line and 
like managing the throttle or something else. And it's like, yeah, all those bumps really don't mean all that much. It's like, you know, the plane is inherently stable and it's going to self-recover and whatnot. And it's like, you know, maybe this these kind of bumps were the artist's intent and maybe mm-hmm. we don't need to like jerk the EQ and the compressor and all this other stuff around and maybe we don't need to do all of this crazy cutting and boosting and maybe FabFilter made the EQ curves look like that. Uh, because they were trying to sell you a pretty-looking EQ, and you actually are just going to use a small amount of that EQ as opposed to all those pretty bands and colors. Um, I don't recommend books, though. (laughs) But that's just how I learn. Um, If I had to recommend anything, it would be what Sam said, is I would... I think people are a lot more friendly these days and a lot more willing to help you out. The only piece of advice I will give in that regard is make sure you're taking advice from people and like asking for that advice and wisdom. Um, Make sure you're only asking that from people who are actually making things that are relevant and things that you think sound good as opposed to like, oh man, look at all the pictures they're posting. It's like, well, if you're posting a lot of pictures you're probably not mastering a lot of music. Mm. And so um, if you and if you don't like the songs that they're working on, you think they kind of sound like garbage, I probably really wouldn't ask them for advice. Um, if they're not making the music that you kind of like either, if you want to be top 40, make sure you're reaching out to Sam and asking him, hey, you're like like a top 40 hip-hop, rap, country kind of guy. Um, I don't know if Sam will help you. But <laughs> he'll, probably, he'll probably chat you. with you back yeah. and forth. He's a, you're, you're a nice guy. Yeah. Um, but if, uh, well, yeah, yeah. If you see someone on YouTube or something or you listen to a podcast and you don't like what their stuff sounds like, I probably would not ask them how they do what they do and I wouldn't buy their course. Um, so I think that's kind of, that's kind of it. I would probably I, I I love like like the whole people aspect of this. And I feel like people are really willing these days to uh chat with you about this. Like I had someone the other day say, Hey, it's like, hey, it's like, yeah, it's like we are in the same town. I'd love to like we're in the same town, we do the same thing. I'd love to grab a beer and just pick your brain on stuff. And uh I think he's kind of transitioning into this area and it's like yeah, let's do that. Just let me know when you're available. I'd love to chat. There's certainly there's certainly not enough beers in an evening to go over <laughs> all the stuff that we can talk about in this regard and kind of being nerds about it. So, um, yeah, there's more than enough room and music and everything else out there. So, um, yeah, I don't think there's a reason to have any type of scarcity mindset. And if you find someone who is of scarcity mindset, just kind of let them live in it. It's like, it's... Probably wasn't probably wasn't worth a, a, either of y'all's time any, anyway. So, anywho, you have anything else, Sam? No, I think it's great. I Sweet. talked a lot. <laughs> Holy bejesus, you did! <sighs> I just have like I just see like all these little tiny spikes of me like, <clears throat> yep, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> all the <laughs> random noises and crap that I've learned that I make over the past 151 episodes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of that and not a lot of me talking, but that's fine. I think what you said was super helpful and super relevant. And uh, um, you offered some pretty lovely wisdom into all of that. So thank you. You're um, so welcome. Hopefully it was helpful. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of uh, Parks and Rec, Chris Traeger. Uh, <laughs> Sam Moses. All right. <laughs> anyway... Uh, I guess we'll hop into the outro. If you like what you heard, if you wouldn't mind uh, leaving us a comment, a review, subscribing, that's a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, comments are great. Stars are great. Go to like wherever you need to go to Apple, Google, whatever you need to do. And uh, yeah, I love reading the comments. I like seeing what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and uh, what we could be doing better. Um, shoot us an email, whatever you need to do. If you like... You know, you'd like a mastering engineer. Sam, the, the lovely Sam Moses, can be found at Moses Mastering. I can be found at for the record mastering, 
we would both love to take your single, EP, record, whatever you have across the line and essentially call it done and finish the record and uh, be the best mastering engineer we could be for you. So if you like that, we would like to be that for you. Um, what else do we normally say this time? Oh, the beat in the background. Mm-hmm. It was made by the one and only Sam Moses. Right here. Yeah, the lovely. If you can give him some praise, some props, say, hey, thanks for making these episodes so awesome sounding. We greatly appreciate it. I believe this is episode 151, uh, so long as nothing scoots in front of it. And uh, so that's 151 like original pieces of content Sam has made for this podcast. So thank you so much. And if y'all can thank him, I would really appreciate it. If nothing else, do it, do it for me. Um, besides that, I think we're done. I think we're done here. Woo-hoo. Do we know how to switch to a mastering career now, Sam? I think uh, we have a good starting place, and then we can have some conversations. Yeah, I think there's a great like blueprint roadmap kind of thing. Yeah. Hopefully it's more of like a, like a GPS than like a map quest, but <laughs> you got the printout. <laughs> Anyway, we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. So, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever y'all are having, have a darn good one. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and we will see y'all in the next episode. <gasps> Cue the music. Yay! See y'all. Yay!